this is Rod Genders, and you're listening to the Estate Planner Podcast, a weekly broadcast of discussions regarding wills and estate planning, probate and estate administration, trusts and guardianship, inheritance claims and contested estates. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about the poor man's will, which is uh, a term that's often used to describe joint ownership of assets. And uh, the particular type of joint ownership that we're going to be discussing is called joint tenancy. So this is uh, a way of owning property jointly with another person, and it's commonly used by uh, people who are getting along in years, uh, particularly if they need some assistance with money management. But as you'll see, it's a, a solution that can also cause lots of problems. So first up, uh, what is joint tenancy? It's um, often used by couples, married couples or partners in um, a relationship as a means of owning shared assets. And there are some really good reasons to do this, but there are also quite a few drawbacks. And joint accounts are often referred to as a poor man's will because they allow an individual to give assets to another person upon their death but without going through the probate process. Some people have the perception uh, from media stories, they've heard horror stories, that probate might consume the whole estate. And so in an attempt to avoid the court system and to avoid lawyers and taxes and costs, some individuals set up joint accounts, believing that this will simplify the process and allow the other asset holder, the, the joint account holder, to uh, easily obtain the money following the death of the first of them. And this can work really well for married couples in particular, but a certain type of married couple will benefit more than others. So married couples in a long-standing traditional relationship that don't have any complicating factors can use this technique quite well. For example, mum and dad have been married to each other for 50 years and they own everything jointly. When dad dies, everything automatically passes to mum by right of survivorship, meaning that there are no assets in dad's name alone and therefore there's no need for probate in his estate. Mum just gets the lot by right of survivorship, so there's no probatable assets in dad's estate. But this method might not work quite so well when it's a second or subsequent marriage or relationship. And that sort of blended family situation is increasingly common in Australia. There are a lot of divorces and remarriages. And this blended family situation creates very special issues which requires very careful estate planning. So if Dad had remarried and he leaves everything to his second wife, then eventually the beneficiaries under the will of the second or, or subsequent wife's estate, they're going to inherit everything, meaning that unless Dad's biological children contest his estate shortly after he dies, they may well miss out entirely. This is why, or partly why, there's been such an explosion in estate litigation in recent years. It's tied into the growth of second and subsequent relationships. 
So joint tenancy is also problematic where the joint owners aren't in a, a relationship like a, a marriage or domestic partnership. So where this strategy is attempted between a parent and a child, there are some difficulties. Uh, many parents can be a bit naive in their perception or assumption that the child they designate as joint account holder will automatically treat all their other siblings fairly. And uh, sometimes that isn't the case. As a result, um, if uh, somebody set up a joint account and leaves a will that divides everything equally between their kids, but expects the surviving joint account holder to divide it in accordance with the will, they could be disappointed, and so could the other beneficiaries, the other children who aren't the joint asset holder. Um, often someone will question whether the surviving joint account holder is the owner of those funds, or whether the account was really just set up for convenience of distribution. And if there's no formal documents to determine the answer, the beneficiaries named in the will may feel aggrieved and want what they consider to be their fair share of the estate. And so litigation's often the result. Disputes among family members can become highly emotional and uh, these controversies can permanently end family relationships. Then you've got high stress, high legal costs, delay, and an emotionally fueled dispute, breaking the family apart. Now, what can you do to avoid this? Well, there are other ways to structure joint ownership of assets. Uh, we've had a brief chat about joint tenancy, but there's another method, and that's called tenancy in common. And that lets each party own a a precise percentage or fraction of the uh, of the asset so it doesn't have to be an even split it could be 75 25 or whatever one tenth and each person has the right to sell their own share without the other party's approval or consent and they can also bequeath their own share in their own will under tenancy in common the ownership of the asset doesn't automatically transfer to the surviving account holder when the first one dies. So it goes according to the will of each of them. Whereas joint tenancy, there's a survivorship interest. And so it's the surviving owner who gets the lot. So that's a very important distinction between different ways of owning property jointly with another person and you need to be clear on what type of ownership you want to structure and some people get it wrong they tick the wrong box on the form and they find that what they wanted was tenants in common but what they got was joint tenants or vice versa now another point to be aware of is that um, joint signatory doesn't necessarily equal joint owner. Sometimes an older person wants a trusted person, typically a child, to be able to sign documents at their bank in respect of a specific account. They might, 
might not want or even be able to create a power of attorney and they don't intend to give ownership of the account to the child, they just want the convenience of someone to be a joint signatory or authorised person to access that account on behalf of the, the sole owner, the older person. To avoid doubt about survivorship rights, the account needs to be set up so that it's correctly titled in the name of the parent only and just allowing the child signatory rights, not property rights. Um, so that's something that needs to be very carefully looked at. It's important for everyone to be clear on whether it's to be a joint account and whether that joint account is to be regarded as an estate asset. So let's just say uh, mum and child are both named on a bank account. It's a very common area for disputes when mum's will states that the estate is to be distributed equally among all her children and doesn't make any specific reference to the joint accounts. This then leaves confusion as to what she actually intended, her, her testamentary intentions in her will appear to be in conflict with this question of survivorship uh, of uh, the ownership of the joint asset. So this joint ownership, tenants, uh, joint tenancy, immediately raises potential problems and, and there are several of them. One could be described as who dies first misses out and it might not be the person you expect. Obviously people are more or less expecting that the older person will die first but that doesn't always happen and if the child dies first then that means the elderly parent will be left as sole surviving owner of that asset and then the child and his or her beneficiaries if they were counting on that asset as part of their inheritance then this joint tenancy arrangement has just thwarted, thwarted them. Another problem is uh, what we call divided loyalties. What happens if the older person needs to use most or all of the joint account to fund alternative accommodation later in life. This is a really common problem where mum puts her child in as joint tenant on the title of the house, maybe to avoid probate or, or more often to move her in uh, with uh, her family and uh, you know, gives them a nicer house to raise their kids and also to be on hand to look after mum. But the probabilities are pretty high nowadays that mum will eventually need a higher level of care than her family can provide. And so she'll need access to that asset to buy into a retirement village or nursing home. But now she's no longer the sole owner of that asset because she's put somebody else on the title and uh, granting joint ownership means giving up sole control of the asset. And that can create real problems particularly if it's real estate and somebody else is now living there and they're on the title and entitled to demand to continue to live there. It might be very difficult for the younger family to just suddenly move out in order to free up the asset so it can be sold so that mum can buy into the nursing home. People make all these life decisions based on what they assume is going to happen in the future and don't make sufficient provision for contingencies.
Another problem is that there can be family law, Centrelink and tax consequences of structuring the ownership as, uh, as joint tenants. Um, and this, these consequences can apply to all the joint owners. So let's say you've got mum and daughter and they're both on the title. If either of them gets divorced or separated or gets into financial difficulties or gets sued or goes bankrupt, that joint asset can be attacked by the creditors of either of them. In other words, the parent's asset has just been exposed to a whole new world of potential predators. Similarly, if the child has tax problems, the parent's asset can now be attacked to pay for those tax issues. And again, similarly, pension entitlements for both the parent and the child can be affected by this joint ownership because the Centrelink has uh, tests for both assets and income and now that it's a joint asset then it flavours both of them. Then we come to estate disputes. If, um, if the joint tenancy benefits one child who then also benefits under the will of the deceased joint owner then the other will beneficiaries might well seek to argue that injustice and unfairness has occurred and, and they might seek to challenge the estate to even up the distributions. It's not difficult to foresee that uh, people can get their noses out of joint to think that uh, child number one is going to get not only an equal share of the estate but they've also gotten this other asset which could be a bank account or it could be a house and uh, if they get that entirely to themselves, clearly they're getting a disproportionate share of the estate. And again, hence litigation becoming more common nowadays. Um, another example of a problem is where the account has simply had the wrong registration. And it's quite a common problem where, let's say, the elderly parent is living with one of the children and that child is handling the parent's financial affairs they set up a joint account out of convenience to make uh, you know, financial money management easier and to simplify paying the parents' bills, that child may well feel, with a certain level of justification, that they're shouldering a heavier burden than their siblings in the care and, and maintenance of their parent. And that can lead to a sense of entitlement, i.e. I'm on the... Uh, I'm on the title for this account because I'm doing more work and therefore I should receive the whole thing when mum dies. But that might not be how the siblings see it and it might also not be what the deceased parent intended. And so it needs to be very carefully documented. And that unfortunately leads into uh, another very real, very common problem that's becoming alarmingly prevalent and that's called elder abuse which has a lot of definitions, but in this context we're talking about abuse of the trust and the uh, financial duty that uh, somebody might owe under a power of attorney. So let's just say that mum creates a power of attorney appointing her son as the agent, and it's a, a general and enduring power of attorney that has fairly broad powers that allows the agent to make transfers to himself and uh, typically 
what will happen is that uh, the older person's capacity or cognitive ability will start to decline and then the child as the agent under power of attorney again often with a sense of justification and entitlement starts to transfer funds into a joint bank account or even an entirely separate account under that child's control. If it's a joint account then on the death of the parent it becomes the property of the child and this really may not have been the intent of the deceased and such conduct by an agent under power of attorney may represent a very serious breach of fiduciary duty or cause other legal challenges to be made relating to things like conversion or theft, undue influence, duress and um, there could be criminal or civil legal proceedings against that agent under power of attorney and oftentimes these abuses only become apparent after the death of the deceased and so when you have those sorts of legal proceedings they then greatly delay and complicate the administration of the deceased estate and uh, add greatly to the costs and the stress and the delays of it. Finally, a quick word about uh, do-it-yourself wills and other documents. Um, the internet age has contributed its own set of problems to this specific issue and lots of people go online and they obtain forms to attempt to prepare their own will or power of attorney uh, or they try to do so for an elderly relative and none of these forms are individualized to the circumstances of the individual or to the laws of the state where the individual lives they don't explain the subtleties and nuances involved in joint accounts or other matters that we've been talking about those sorts of forms are just expensive stationery and they're blind to the reality of the laws that govern the state where that individual resides. So from a practical standpoint somebody who sets up a joint account and, and does their own will they'll save a few dollars initially but they are risking huge problems for themselves and their family and their estate and typically those problems will cost very much more to fix assuming they even can be fixed than if you paid a professional estate planning solicitor to do the job properly in the first place. Anyone and especially elderly people wanting to leave assets to a family member should take very great care to minimize the risk of problems later on and that includes the gift being challenged or invalidated down the track. Now there are steps that can be taken by an experienced lawyer specializing in estate planning to greatly assist and facilitate your testamentary intentions to be made properly effective. And one of those solutions to be effective is for there to be proper documentation of any gift or loan to be drawn up in a legal document as part of a modern integrated estate plan. So look, I'll leave you with the final thought. When families put their arrangements into a proper legal deed or contract, it can plan for future contingencies and it can protect everybody. It's very cheap insurance to prevent litigation and family distress.
This has been another estate planner podcast from Genders and Partners Solicitors in Adelaide, South Australia. We hope you've enjoyed it and invite you to check out our website at www.genders.com.au. Thanks for listening.